Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. I'm Brian Sheffy. Oh, Donya, unmute. You need to unmute. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Donya Williams. How you doing, y'all? This is so new. So. <laughs> I'm Lolita Yeldell Silver. It's nice to be here. Hello, everyone. <laughs> yes, Hello. So obviously, we are now broadcasting on TV. To say that Donnie and I are actually over the moon about this is a slight understatement. So thank you to the E360, E360 TV family for getting us up and running. Yes, thank you very much. This is awesome. Um, we're excited to be here. We are it's, it's just a wonderful thing. And I'm really excited about having um, Lalita on the show today. And it's, you know, we're playing on YouTube. We're playing on Amazon Fire Stick. We're on Apple TV. We're on Roku, all of it. Roku and Apple iOS and Android. So we're everywhere. And we're just really excited about the entire thing. So we are going to get straight into it because today we have Lalita Yeldell, who's written, this is probably going to, yeah, the light, the light's not cooperating on this one. <laughs> She's written an amazing book called Circumcision of a Wounded Heart, an unjust journey due to systemic racism, classism, and oppression. So we have a lot to cover today. Um, it is an upsetting story. Um, I actually got tearful more than once reading it and it makes it and I'm not one of life's criers I, I just don't um, and I actually felt myself getting emotional um powerful story and for those of you who've been following genealogy adventures for a few seasons you know that last season we had a two-parter with a um, retired police chief Ralph Godby who as a retired police chief was talking about systemic racism and he knew you know the issues that he was aware of from his perspective, well, we have a real life case of that today. Um, it is powerful, it's evocative. And in terms of the American judicial system, it is the change is a long time coming. And if you really wanna understand what Black Lives Matter is truly all about and not what people might think it's about, this is it. And Lolita's experience is the reason why law schools teach critical race theory. This her case is textbook just across the board. So with that, welcome to the show, Lolita. Thank you so much. Thank you all for having me. Mm -hmm. We are and happy. This is, <laughs> and this is really special for me because we are cousins. All three of us are connected <laughs> through Edgefield, and this is the first time I've actually um, I've actually met you. So hello, cousin. Same here. Hello. <laughs> so there is a lot of me. This is my straight cousin, guys. So this is like. <laughs> This is, this is, yeah, I don't know if y'all can even see the resemblance in us. It's there. So we cheekbones and everything. So there is a lot of moving parts to the story. Some of it might be confusing for the viewers. So I just wanted to like do a real kind of basic 101 of what happened. And my understanding is it was a car accident. It was you um, driving home. It was mm -hmm. another car coming in the, the that was driving on the wrong side of the road. Mm -hmm. There was a head-on collision, mm -hmm. and your life did a three hundred. Well, actually, not a three hundred and sixty because you go back to where you started. Your life did a complete one eighty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, from being in a coma for over a month to waking up to your family thinking you weren't even going to make survive the accident. That okay. was not your fault even though you were later charged for it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have all of that. You have a small child. She's freaking out because, you know, you can imagine you were you were your child's whole world. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know whether her mother was going to live or die for mm -hmm. a month, like the rest of your family. Yeah. Um, and basically, ever since then, it's about picking up the pieces. But if we can just do, because, and again, appreciating that you had a horrific accident. I don't think there was one part of your body that was not broken. Literally, every part of your body was broken. So it is, you know, you're still recovering. It's been years later. But if you can just tell us the year and roughly what you remember, appreciating that you have memory, you have memory issues because, mm -hmm. of, um, because of the head trauma, you can just uh, step us through it. 
Well, actually, the accident, it occurred in uh, April 11, 2004. Um, I don't remember any details of the accident. Um, as I was in a coma, a lot of the story, uh, my mom, siblings, friends, you know, different people told me in terms of things happening. So when it first did come out in the newspaper, everything else, like, I mean, I had to learn these things about what people were saying, what was saying did happen because I had no clue of what happened. I didn't even have a clue that I was in the hospital. Um, so it, it was, it was very horrific because, um, you imagine just waking up and not even realizing where you are. Uh, to someone telling you you've been involved in an accident and, you know, it's, it's, it, that it, 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 you're the cause of it, you know. Um, and so it, it, was a, it was a lot, a lot to deal with. And the type of person I am, I need to have a clear understanding of things. And so um, just delving in to try to see and pick up the pieces to see where everything went wrong. Um, it, it, it was hard. It, it was it was very difficult, very hard. Um, I remember looking at a news article that my mom had uh, given to me, um, and it indicates uh, that someone else was at fault, you know, in the very beginning. Um, well, after the main driver of the other vehicle passed away, it was put back on the investigation, and then I was at fault. Um, so just trying to kind of get through the whole process of what was taking place without even knowing anything that happened, because, I mean, I did have to, they asked me a lot of questions about uh, my memory and things of that nature, but I didn't remember anything to be able to uh, testify on my behalf as to what occurred. Um, so they did have to go along with um, the information that they received from witness statements, um, which there was not one witness statements where someone was accusing me of doing anything wrong. <laughs> so, I mean, Throughout this whole process, it it, it, it got a little bit, uh, well, very difficult for me because when you're trying to clearly understand something and none of it makes sense, you know, I'm starting to question like what is really happening and what is going on? Because when you're trying to put the pieces together and you're not, you're unable to do so, you know, that was very confusing to me. And the thing was, you didn't have the pieces because you literally, you literally couldn't remember anything. Correct. Mm -hmm. And just again, for the benefit of the viewers, all of this happened in Virginia. And I, did this happen in Richmond or outside of Richmond? I was in Richmond, Virginia. Okay. It was on the highway, actually. Um, I want to say I want to say I ninety five, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I believe I, I believe it was I ninety five. So the first part of the book that really confused me in terms of what happened is you did a really good job of explaining how the investigating trooper decided he would, you know, to do forensic investigation of a car accident involves mathematics, mm -hmm. higher mathematics, trigonometry and calculus, and it also involves physics. Mm -hmm. You have two bodies moving at a rate of speed that collide, and then that's where the science and the math takes over. You look at the damage to the motor vehicles, the tire marks on the road to figure, you know, who braked, how long the car kind of carried on after braking, just all of that science. Trust me, um, sci that kind of science and math, my weak points, I, I ain't even going to lie about that one. <laughs> physics, out, physics, calculus, and trig brought down my, my whole high school kind of average. So I have an appreciation for that. <laughs> so the investigating trooper just decided he wasn't even going to look at the math which is actually the really important part. And he, he just decided to look at the science and then he kind of came up with his own theory. Because the bit that I didn't understand is there was a car that was traveling the wrong direction, mm -hmm. which was the whole reason behind the head-on collision. Mm -hmm. And it should have been really easy to prove what car was in the wrong, but there was an issue about that. Well, that's that that's that's the thing that really confused me, because when you have witness statements and people can say, well, I know she was traveling the same direction as I was because I was directly behind her. You have the bus driver saying that you have someone else saying the exact same thing. And so these people didn't know me. They came from out of town to testify on my behalf. You know, I don't remember anything, but you have these people saying she was going in the same direction as I was going, you know, but yet and still that was not taken into consideration. Okay. And the next thing that became really apparent to me, and I think Donnie's going to jump in on this, is before you actually wrote 
that there was a personal hostility towards you from the police. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking everything this woman is suffering at this point seems personal. It feels personal. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the justice, justice is meant to be blind. It's not meant to have an opinion. It is meant to trade on fact. And that just seemed, from the beginning, that just seemed wholly absent in your case. Yeah, I know from talking with my family, um, my mom said that when she talked with the trooper, uh, he was very rude to my family from the very beginning because um, he was trying to tell my mom that they believe it was my fault. And my mom said, it's not, that can't be true. And because she would not agree with him, you know, it ended up kind of being an argument, so to speak. But my mom was told that he was not the original officer on the scene. There was another officer on the scene. And when he got there, evidently that person was removed. We never heard of them again. So I have no idea of who that person was. But yeah, it it it's, it was so crazy because, you know, like my mom, you know, my mom, my uncle, they went down to the police station, asking questions, like everything, trying to figure out what is going on. But they seem to have an issue with my family because of them wanting answers, you know, and, you know, he even came to the hospital. My mom said when I was in a coma and told her, you know, uh, he, he wanted to give his condolences. I wasn't even dead yet. <laughs> You know, and so it I mean, it was it was it was very crazy. But like I'm getting all of this information, like I say, from family, you know, uh, friends, different things that happened where they were there to actually witness, you know, what took place and talking to uh, the state trooper um, during a time period when all of this took place. I'm at a, you know, reading the book. I'm going to tell you right now, and I said this to you earlier before we got on, I was so determined to find a a bright spot. Mm -hmm. And I just kept reading, kept reading, because I needed a bright spot. And um, I literally got to the last chapter. And I read something in the last chapter on the very first page. And it was still at the point you were like, but this happened. Nothing was going to compare, prepare me for, I'm like, nope. And I closed the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I couldn't go any further because mm-hmm. I wasn't getting my bright spot. I didn't want anything else to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And it was crushing me. Now, I'm the person that read the, the um, what's the name of the book, Brian? What, Charlotte Brooks? Yes, Charlotte Brooks. You can't get more detrimental. <laughs> that book right there was just terrible. But I was able to read that book. Mm-hmm. And there was only one section in that book that made me close it briefly. But then I got right back to it. But your book was so very interesting. It's so very, you could see, you could tell the openness and the honesty that was coming from you in the book that you had no choice but to just keep reading and keep reading and going forward. And, but it was, I, I didn't cry, but my heart just ached. And I was like, she can't get a break for nothing. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, um, the thing about the, the personal and, and the officer and everything like that, I, I knew it was personal, like three lines in. Mm-hmm. And I think the larger part of my frustration and the anger that came from it was that initial injustice, that initial mishandling just kept getting compounded to the point where, and we'll we'll discuss this later in the show, Mm -hmm. you were still haunted by parts of this systemic injustice and the the, the racism within the American justice system. You You want to move past this. You want to put this behind you. Mm-hmm. But because that initial injustice was laid down, you're still fighting, you know, this is still following you. Yeah. That that really frustrated me and made me so, and it still makes me feel a kind of way, but it made me feel really angry as I was reading the book. <sighs> yes. Um, I, I just, like I told Danya before we even went live, I mean, I, I just 
can't believe and will not believe that this, this story has to end this way because it's been going on for so long and I've been fighting for so long, you know, and, you know, I'm like, it's not going to end this way. Everything, I have to overcome whatever in order for me to get to where it is. God is trying to place me because I know that I didn't go through all of that for nothing. Um, even, even with me finishing my education, everything else, you know, I have my master's degree in social work. You know, I've been offered multiple jobs. I can't get in my field because of my conviction being a barrier crime. And in the state of Virginia, a barrier crime is forever. So it's never removed. You know, um, I've done a, a newspaper article in reference to this. Um, I reached out to, you know, my representative in reference to this, you know, different things that I've done and trying to help myself. Um, but yet and still nothing is done. So, you know, I know that if I'm experiencing this, it's so many other people because there are so many. When I say a lot of barrier crimes listed. Is a lot of them. And you actually, you won't even know that you have a barrier crime. And I wouldn't have known if I hadn't applied for this job. And his sister, she was, she, she cared enough to call me and have a conversation with me and inform me about why she couldn't hire me. And she explained to me what a barrier crime is. So I would have never known about that. So I know that there are a lot of people you know, uh, that have been incarcerated, you know, probably are out trying to get a job and they can't, but they're just being denied. They probably don't even have an idea that they have a barrier crime conviction and that is what's holding them back, you know? And so the crazy part is, you know, I was able to do my internships, you know, for, for two years and it worked directly with the public, worked with children, adults, everything, was, was able to receive my re registration to do it as well. But then, you know, it comes to getting a job and, oh, well, you can't do this, you know, was, which was very confusing to me because you allowed me to do it, to do my internship. No one told me uh, prior to when I started school that you're not going to be able to go into this field because of, you know, you having this conviction. But yet and still you allow a person to do this and then trying to get uh, this far to tell them that they can't move forward. You know, like I said, I, I I was offered multiple jobs. I still have the letters to prove it, you know, um, only to tell me when my background check comes back that, oh, we can't hire you because you have a barrier crime conviction. So do they, do they, do they, um, are you saying that they, they didn't know until after the background check or? Correct. Because uh -huh. once, they, once they, once they pull your background, you know, and then they see the type of conviction and they explain, well, you know, involuntary manslaughter, that's one of the things that is considered to be a barrier crime conviction, but the list is extremely long. So there are a lot of, um, there, there are a lot of um, charges that are considered to be barrier crime. But if no one tells you that, you, a person wouldn't know. They would just go and apply for a job and they just won't hear back or they just won't get the job. So again, for the benefit of the audience, just, just talk about the journey between being the actual victim of the accident that you didn't cause, and then you being arrested and actually jailed for it. Uh, I think that it, it, was, it was very difficult for me. Um, I can remember when I was found guilty, um, and I want to say that this was before... Um, before my uh, my appeal bond. Um, and I was arrested for 15 days. Um, they put me in orange and white stripes. Um, and that's like if you're a serial killer, you know. Um, and I was not allowed. Oh, wait I was, a minute. The orange and white stripes, they, they, you mean they do things to let people know what somebody is by their uniform? Yeah, I mean, like, in, terms of, in terms of color when you're incarcerated, because, you know, orange is felony, then you have yellow, then you have, you know, then you have the one for work, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's a di differentiation of, you know, where you're, you belong. Um, but I was I was in I was confined with it, like in a cell, but I was by myself, you know, and you could only come out one hour. And, you know, I was wearing orange and white, but, you know, the, the stripes. And I really, 
could not believe what I was experiencing because I had never been incarcerated in my life. Um, so throughout throughout this whole ordeal, it, it, it was very difficult for me because you you literally have to mentally take yourself out of who you are to try to deal with what is going on with you. Um, and I, 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 I just don't even know how to explain it. I remember myself uh, during the time period when I, I, my appeal, I did win my appeal and I was still out on an appeal bond. And, you know, I remember taking five classes in college, like not to even think about everything that I had going on um, because mentally I was so stressed out. I didn't know what to do. And so just trying to kind of like deal with that and then trying to figure out like, how did I get to this point? And trying to understand like questioning why this happened to me. You know, I, I always thought the justice system would work, but what I began to see is that was not the case. And I, I really didn't want to believe that, you know, going through trial the first time and you hear being found guilty and you're sentenced to 15 years and you have never been locked up before. I mean, I literally thought I was losing my mind. Now to explain to viewers how egregious what happened to you was, <clears throat> you started receiving paperwork about the accidents and about your case. Mm -hmm. And there were out, first of all, you can talk about the outright lies, but they even got basic details about you wrong. They mm -hmm. were flat out wrong. Your your weight, mm -hmm. they put you down as being about, what was it, 40, 40 130. pounds? 130, less, I think it was. Mm -hmm. 40 pounds less than what you actually were mm -hmm. to try to make it seem as though, because first of all, you hadn't drunk anything. There was, no mm -hmm. D, there was no DUI, but they yeah. were trying to pin that on you. Mm -hmm. giving, you a giving you a lower weight would have increased your blood alcohol level. Yes. Right. So they were wrong about the weight. Mm -hmm. They were wrong about, and just talk about some of the other things that they, that, that they were just flat out wrong about. Um, they were wrong about the weight, the date of birth, age, like the, the, the whole record was wrong, you know, and that was questioned. And then it has somebody to testify, oh, well, no, if a person comes in this way, we just put it under this, you know, to kind of like, you know, justify it. And I just couldn't believe what was happening before my eyes, because when my attorney had got my records, it was also someone else's medical records mixed in with mine. Oh, and wow. so now you're saying that these people are so perfect that they can't make any mistakes. Okay, so I have, I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> so the judge didn't comment on any of that. Uh, no, mm -mm. really, not nothing. No word yeah. caught nothing uh, to the prosecution about that. Uh, every, every time my attorney tried to speak on certain things, I know there was one particular point, and this is during my first trial, where the judge said, "Overrule, let's move on." When he started to ask questions about the alcohol level, the stuff being wrong, and everything, you know, what I'm saying she said that she that she wanted to move on. Because he wanted to question another witness again in reference to the information, but she wouldn't allow it. She said, overrule, let's move on. You know, Even with your, your life. So your basically, life. I'm sorry, go ahead, Brian. No, oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, even though your freedom was literally hanging in the balance, but go ahead. <laughs> so, so basically, um, they didn't give them the opportunity to, to cross examine about those no. particular things. No. no. Both in both trials, uh, the second trial was <laughs> that was a little bit different because you have a judge on the bench saying that the details in the trial is so confusing that he hopes that the jury is able to make a, a, they, they're able to reach the verdict that they need to reach. And so, for him to make that statement, that right there is saying that there is reasonable doubt if you are saying this and you're the judge, you know, and so. <laughs> I, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I, I just couldn't believe it. So kind of what I was getting from the book is if you are Black and a woman 
or if you're poor, because again, you you do discuss, you do talk about mm -hmm. classism. So mm -hmm. poor, regardless of what your ethnicity or race is, if mm -hmm. you're poor, and you, or you're you know a, a, a part of the oppressed group, Black, Latinx, Native American, put whatever moniker you want to it. Basically, what you're saying is this justice system is not for you. It was not. No, for you. It isn't. I mean, I, I, I truly, honestly believe I would be still incarcerated today if my family, everybody didn't work together to raise money in order for me to get another attorney and to fight the system. I know that I probably would have done those 15 years uh, that they originally gave me because I wouldn't have had the money to pay to to have it appealed and pay another lawyer. You know, my family had to come up with a lot of money uh, just to try to for me to be free, you know. And uh, I mean, it's, it's 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 really sad. You know, most people will probably give up in the beginning. If I thought I had to raise thousands of dollars, you know, all of the things I was going through, some people just be like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to be able to accomplish that. I, I, I just I just give up. And that this is what's happening to our brothers and sisters now. And the ones that have life, the ones that have been there for a long time, if you don't have the money to be able to try and save yourself. And then even in some cases, you might have the money, but still you're the wrong color. You know, and it just may not work out for you. And with my situation, OK, I'm not incarcerated now, you know, but the, it's still being made difficult for me to be able to move forward because they wanted to force me to try to take a plea. And I would not do it. So if you don't do it my way, then you don't have to worry about anything because I'm going to make it difficult for you and you're not going to be able to move forward anyway. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you made a comment in the book how you, because I know Brian was going to talk about this as well, about how you were changing yourself mm -hmm. in the process, the judgmental. Let me tell you something. <laughs> you're not judgmental you're a Yaledale, okay <laughs> that's what you are and we are a very intelligent group of people we question we ask we we want to know because we we our parents whether we were raised together or not you're not going to sit here and tell me that Layla Bell and and your mom Linda Mm -hmm. that they did not tell you the same thing that my mother said to me. Mm -hmm. No one is better than you. Mm -hmm. You are equal to them, mm -hmm. but ain't nobody better. That's right. So that wasn't, that wasn't you being judgmental or anything. That was just you being a Yaledale. And there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely mm -hmm. nothing. So please don't change that. And I would also say more than a little edge field, you know, your, your reluctance to accept the hand that you had been dealt mm -hmm. and the cards that you'd been dealt in the situation that you found yourself in. Donnie and I read about that, about our ancestors in Edgefield all day, every day. Mm -hmm. we just, we're just not a people who lay down and accept things that get done to us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Rhonda Barlow says, so if this happened to you, how many people are innocent and their lives are ruined because of a lot of people? Mm -hmm. because, and then she said a lot of people yeah I mean it, it, it's a lot of people affected and that's what motivated me is in addition to my own struggles to write the book you know it's like God is saying like you know a lot of people are dealing with these issues and so it needs to come out because it might be able to give somebody hope you know that person that is in their cell trying to thinking that they won't be able to overcome or be able to do anything with their life because this is it for me you know, and so I think that for some people, it can bring them hope, you know, that, you know, it, it's all in how you look at things and how you move forward yourself. Yeah. Um, but you can overcome it. And again, you and I'm going to use the word systemic because you were failed systemically. So from the the first lawyers that you had to the judges that mm -hmm. sat on your case to the police mm -hmm. who were supposed to investigate objectively mm -hmm. and didn't. But then when you were in prison, you had counselors who were supposed uh, to be there to build you and to help you and to get mm -hmm. you on your feet. They failed you. You yeah. said there was not a part of your body that was not broken. 
Mm -hmm. So you had disability. You had people trying to make you work. You had healthcare professionals in prison who were working against you. Yeah. Not trying to make her work, Brian. They made her work. Mm -hmm. You had a counselor who, you know, again, because of alleged misdeeds in his private life, killed himself, mm-hmm. but went out of his way to make your life a Yeah. And who's supposed to help you? So it's just every aspect of this experience that I read about and that you lived through was working against you. There was mm-hmm. nothing working for you. I mean, do I have, do I have, is that a good and fair impression? Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, the whole thing, and then when when you got to the counselors, and what makes it even worse, first of all, I really wanted to fight him, and I was <laughs> angry because and he killed himself because I was ready to go find him and just like, <laughs> <laughs> your host is ready. Let me catch you real quick because <laughs> this is crazy. But nevertheless, you know, I'm like, then you turn around and you get a great counselor. Mm-hmm. And they Fire her, mm-hmm. yeah, because she was helping everybody. Mm-hmm. So I think this points towards the injustice towards those who are in jail. Because yeah. this woman who was helping you, who told you what was put on your thing that mm-hmm. the other counselor would not tell you, mm-hmm. when you found out you had alcohol charges on your thing. Mm-hmm. Drug you, charges. Drug charges. You was a drug dealer. You were. I'm like, you have to be kidding me. Mm-hmm. He was the one that told you all of these things. And now that she's told you all these things, and then she was turning around and, according to you, helping other people, mm-hmm. making, making sure their stuff was right so they could move forward. And they literally fire her. Mm-hmm. If this isn't the definition of mm-hmm. systemic racism, mm-hmm. I don't know what is. Because when you have somebody there to help you and they're actually doing your job and then you they turn around and let her go because she's doing her job, mm-hmm. it was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It I was, mean, it, any, any help there, it was almost like a needle in a haystack. You know, you, you had a few good ones but everybody else just kind of like sticks together, you know, and the inmates were treated horribly. You know, I, I think I talk about in my book, you know, the time that I was in my cell for almost a few hours, they wouldn't let me out having to go to the bathroom. I ended up getting sick. And when I finally did get out, I just vomited everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They, 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 they just don't care how they treat you. Um, you're treated like an animal. Um, yeah. And, and mentally, I mean, that would affect anybody, you know, and I don't think that, well, I know that this is not something that they are concerned about, you know, in, in terms of how people are affected because like the counselors, the different people that they have in place, these people aren't there to help. So how do you expect somebody to deal with the issues that they have as a result of incarceration? You know, and then you got to think about why people continue to come back. Is this not even discussed? Like, you know, what can be done to help? I don't really think that uh, things are placed, you know, things are set up to make it seem like it's to help. But really, it is not. not. And and, and that's why you have so many people uh, that are repeat offenders as a result of it. Mm. Okay, so I have another question. Um, How did this whole thing affect your family life? (sighs) I mean, if you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, but... I mean, it it, it affected my family um, tremendously, Um, especially my daughter. Um, because she didn't understand, you know, me having to to go to prison. And, you know, it was really difficult in, in talking to her. And, you know, she's thinking I abandoned her, you know, and and, and that I left her. You know, um, my mom, it affected my mom so bad that, you know, I really believe my mom getting sick, it, it had a lot to do with the things that I experienced myself um, because me and my mother were very, very close. Um, and she just couldn't deal with 
uh, what was happening to me. You know, my mom had even asked the officer and she said she I, that she would trade places and do the time for me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because she said, you know, my daughter didn't do this. And, you know, I, she just couldn't deal with the fact that I was going to have to be incarcerated and locked away. Um, and even when my mom came to see me, I, I always uh, saw just by looking in her eyes, you know, um, it, it really tore her to pieces. It, it really did, you know, and just having to deal with and live with that myself, you know, it was affecting everybody, you know, siblings, family, my daughter, my mom, you know, and so it was affecting me because it was affecting them. Although I'm trying to stay strong to get through what I'm having to go through. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's done a lot. It's done a lot of damage. And when I read the book, you know, the, the question that I that I had and I still have, and there's no answer for this. Mm-hmm. You are a very articulate woman, educated. <laughs> you were educated and articulate before this ever happened. You had a sense of who you were and what you were about. Mm-hmm. You had that inner kind of fortitude and strength to draw on. Mm-hmm. What happens if you were one of the other women that you were writing about who were poor and oppressed, who didn't have that kind of education or fortitude? If this is what you went through, I hate to think what they went through. And 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 and, and that's the thing right there. I remember when I was incarcerated, I used to sit and I, I used to read a lot. And so if I wasn't reading, I would be writing. Um, and I have people come and just talk to me. They would tell me their whole life story. You know, it, it was just it, it, out of the blue. And, you know, I would talk to a lot of people. And when I say that uh, some of the women I was incarcerated with, they went through some terrible, terrible things. And a lot of their a lot of them didn't have self-esteem, you know, um, and mainly these are the areas where they need to help. They were in abusive relationships, marriages, you know, uh, mistreated uh, parents were on drugs. You know, uh, one girl had been molested by her father. You know, it's a lot of different things that they were going through. But who are these women going to talk to about their problems in order for them to get the help that they need when you're dealing with a system that doesn't care? So there, So we can kind of dispense with the myth that incarceration is about rehab rehabilitation it's just flat out punishment. it's just flat out punishment yeah you can see that from the from what she wrote about it uh yeah so okay i'm because I'm, I'm telling you your your book went to my heart like in so many different ways um so now I, I want to know about the program that you went into, and then they add the nerve to put you on, like a board for it. I guess to, in so many words, and you thought it was going to work, and you thought it was good, but then as you were going through it, that Yaldell mind kicked in, and you were like, "Okay, you're missing this, you're missing this, you're missing this." Yeah, so see, I mean, yeah. it, this, this is what this is the thing right here. See, they needed to put this program in place uh, in order for them to receive funding from the government. OK. Um, and so they had the government. Uh, the governor came in. You know, they had so many different people come in. And so they had uh, the inmates. Uh, I want to say it was it was 12 months. Like if you had 12 months left and when I had gotten to that point, you're transferred to another wing. And uh, so the programming is done there. Well, they didn't have any rules. Any guidelines, nothing like uh, we were supposed to come up with all of this on our own, the inmates, you know, um, and just expect us to work it, you know. And so I'm like, wait a minute here. This is not making any sense. And so they did give uh, certain duties to different people, but some people that didn't want to do things, they didn't make them. You know, it, it was a disaster starting and I didn't want to believe that in the beginning, but it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. But it was pretty much set in place so that when the governor and everyone came, they could show their programming. You know, we're all in a circle. They got the board up like you're learning and you're clapping your hands and all of this kind of stuff. But it was a disaster. Wow. Well, we have an excellent question from Karen Imes. And she's, basically, she's asked, how do we hold our legislators and galvanize our community leaders around this topic? There has to be accountability. Well, let's start with Virginia. Virginia's got a governor's race going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, they should be asked, vote, 
voters in Virginia should be asking the governors, what would you do in a case like this? Um, and we need to be asking that to everyone who's running for public office in our communities. Because mm -hmm. th this is nothing new. We've been hearing, you know, I've grown, you know, I'm 55 years old. I've been hearing about systemic racism and injustice in the American legal system talked at the dinner table since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So our politician, anyone running for public office, we should be asked, what are your plans for rehabilitating the American, the judicial system, starting with your state or your county? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my, I don't know what the, how, how the two of you feel about that. Reading, okay, I'm gonna tell you something. Reading her book discouraged me so much that she spoke to two senators. She sent letters to two senators. One of them was more personal. The other one, it was like a regular thing. Just a, 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 a standard, a standard letter, like a standard response or what have you. You kind of mean like the, the favorite American phrase, thoughts and prayers. It, thoughts it was and so prayers, wild. exactly. That's yeah, it was that that whole thing. It was a thoughts and prayers type of um, thing. And I'm just at a point, like, I don't know how to help. I don't know what we can do or where it is. Because one of my concerns is you have programs, private programs out here that allow people like Lalita to be counselors because they have gone through what they've gone through why is it that she can't get one of those jobs it, it doesn't make sense to me well here is here's another kicker and i'm not sure this probably is in chapter 17 donya but i did, <laughs> I, did uh, <laughs> I did start working right um and i actually worked for a company um, that that worked um, worked with people that had been incarcerated in terms of finding them employment and things of that nature. Okay, well, while working there, I realized that those people didn't really want to help the people they were serving. You know, uh, they talked about people that had been incarcerated um, like they were the worst people ever. Um, I remember hearing one of my colleagues saying, you know, uh, you'll never be able to do that job. You know, and then telling someone else, so she uh, had a conviction, you know, 10 years ago uh, and talking about something she's waiting on God. I don't know what God she waiting on. So these are the things that I would hear when I in my office and it made me so angry, you know. And so I'm just like, you have people serving people that really don't want to help the people. You know, I uh, remember doing my internships and there were several uh, clients I had. They would talk to me about a lot of stuff, but they wouldn't talk to their own counselor uh, because they said they felt like their counselor wanted to tell them how they should live their life, which you have to meet people where they are. You can't tell them how to live their life. You know, once you show them things by questions and having a conversations, because I could talk to my client and ask them, so are you happy with your life? So what would you want to do differently? See, they're able to pull things out themselves. And once they realize they have issues in their life, they'll make the necessary changes themselves without you telling them how you think the, 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 the best way you think it is for them to live their life. Because it's their life. It isn't yours. Mm -hmm. You know, and so a lot of that is going on. And so it, uh, you, you have these people, they're seeing counselors, they're, they're going to be hopeless. I mean, one lady told me she did the counselor. She felt like the counselor thinks she's better than she is and that her life is better because she always tell her everything she's doing wrong. You know, and how are you going to help somebody when you're responding to them in that manner? You can't. Well, we have a go ahead, Brian. You're going to read it. A.E. Barlow just asked the question. So will you have a criminal record now? And I believe the answer to that one is yes, you still yes. have a criminal mm -hmm. record. Still fighting. Also, <laughs> would you like readers to reach out after reading this book? And if Miss Barlow can just elaborate on that, reach out to reach out to whom, or just just reach out in general, just just so that we're clear, because we can take we can in general. In general. <laughs> so if Why someone wants to reach out, where who would who would be the best people to contact? In in terms of reaching out here in Virginia, 
Yeah, I mean, just to help, to help you. In I, any look, I, I have done what I can do. I've reached out to my representative and, and he agreed to meet with me and I met with him and he was supposed to get back with me. And every, every time I reached out after that, he never returned any of my phone calls. I wrote the senators. I wrote the governor. I wrote the mayor. I've, I've done everything that I can do on my end, you know, and it, nothing, nothing has been done. And I want to say that is in chapter 17, where it talks about, you know, the steps and stuff like that, that I've taken in order to, you know, try to overcome and to clear my name. Um, and so I've done everything that I can do on my part. And so I'm like, you know, I wrote the book and, you know, just, just waiting on God to show me what to do next. So, so what are you doing right now? Um, how are you moving forward, living and everything? Well, right. Well, of course, right now, my husband, my husband works and which is, I'm grateful to God that I do have a husband that works to take care of the family. And in the meantime, I've been working on trying to start my own business um, because I still would like to have my master's degree in social work. I still would like to be a counselor. And so I have been working on trying to get that up and running. So the business that you're trying to get up and running, is it is it like one of those not-for-profits who help? Is, is yeah. that the only way you can do it? Um, that's the only way that I'm seeing so far. And so, I mean, I guess it's going to have to come from like more research and trying to figure out what is out there that I can do. Because right now, like I know DBHS, which is the uh, Department of Behavior Health, I want to say Behavior Health Services, that is the federal level. And so because of me having the charges, that's what's stopping me from getting in my field. Although, you know, the, um, what is it called? The, uh, it's, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the group, but it's another group. It's like for state, you know, I have my certifications in order for me to work, but federal level, no. And so the federal level is the one that actually has to say so on what can be done. So actually, Rhonda Barler just beat me to the punch. Isn't this something that the Justice Department can look into, especially under the Civil Rights Act? Um, I, I guess so. You know, I, I'm, I'm just telling you all the steps that I've taken. So, mm -hmm. I mean, if there is something else that you all can suggest that, you know, that would be helpful. I mean, I'm glad to take any insight and be yeah. able to try and take those avenues as well. Well, I mean, I know Merrick Garland's office is very busy and has been since Biden was elected president. But these these are the kinds of cases mm -hmm. that, you wow. know, that that they're looking into. So, Una, maybe we can start a, an email and kind of letter writing campaign to the, the Justice Department. Right. Well, Karen Irons, she says, Brian, thank you for asking my question. Sadly, it will be once again a numbers game, you know. Not every legislature legislator will take mm -hmm. up the cause because it will not further their political agenda. And that mm -hmm. right here. See, that's short termism. That's mm -hmm. again, and I'm gonna say this is I'm not gonna say it's a uniquely American problem. And again, this is from someone who has lived abroad for most of my life. That's short term view. Mm -hmm. Because if they can crack this, you know, mm -hmm. basically I'm thinking about what the conservatives say. The liberals want to have black and brown voters and willing to do anything to, to get them. But if they really wanted to have black and brown voters, they would sort this out. They would mm -hmm. sort the judicial system out. So it is in their interest to get this sorted, to mm -hmm. be the party that actually does it. But anything that's in their interest, they don't do. Exactly. They do the opposite. <laughs> it, it frustrates my soul no end. Yeah. It was interesting to me. I did read, and I want to say this probably has only been a few days ago. Um, there is a, a, a guy here, um, and he actually followed some hard times, and I want to say that he was in addiction. Um, but he is suing um, the, the uh, Department of Behavioral Health Services and uh, because he has a barrier crime conviction, and he's unable to work in his field. So he's suing them. You know, I didn't even know that you were able to do that. But that is something that I came across a few days ago, an article that I was reading here in Virginia. Yeah. Oh, I've got a second yeah. one. This, this issue is what, and I'm never going to get tired of saying this phrase, Vice President Harris ran on. When she was running to be president, when she was 
you know, Joe Biden nominated, not nominated, but made her his vice presidential running mate. This is what she ran on. Mm-hmm. So again, that could be another person that, that people reach out to to say, you campaigned on this issue. You were part of the California legal system for decades. If anyone should understand this and how to overcome it, it's mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, A.E. Barlow says, because this book is about to blow up, <laughs> people are going to want to reach out and connect and support. And then we have another lady by the name of Belinda um, McEarn, I think her name is. McEachin. Like, that, that's actually our cousin as well. Well, she's giving out information as to where to send it you know, where to send stuff. So she probably definitely helped out when, while you were um, incarcerated and she's she's giving email addresses that they can go to. And I, I so appreciate it. Yeah, I see the hot cheekbones now. <laughs> um, and then another person, Shelly Murphy, she said, go public, go beyond the book, start your own podcast. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. And on this and open your voice to the public. They said we can help to spread the word. So the one thing that I love about the genealogy adventures followers and fans is that they are always open and ready. Mm-hmm. You know, they they do not play games. Um another person AE said you need to create a website. I have that part. <laughs> you have that part? Yes. Well, you need to send it to me. What I mean, so we can definitely put it out there. Yeah, my website is lyeldelsilvers.com. Okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's just, we can do, it's, it's so much that uh, people will, are willing to help nowadays. They do stuff like that. And um, let me see, who. what else did somebody else say? Uh, we well, got... I, I can't remember who said it, but there, there was one of the viewers that just hit everybody. As I said, you know, targeting specific, not targeting, but creating a short list of people, you know, movers and shakers in Virginia. Like I said, if there's a hot button topic, this is it. You've got a governor's race going on in Virginia. Mm-hmm. I don't know what other offices are up for election in Virginia, but everyone should be grilled on this. Mm-hmm. Because we have a vice president who ran on this subject. That's you know we've got the Justice Department. Um, okay, sorry, there's a little conversation going on between our. <laughs> um, but even beyond being the cousin, just as a human being, I, I would just love to see you finally break free from this because that's really when you boil it all down that's all you've ever wanted you're Mm -hmm. innocent Mm -hmm. you want your record to illustrate and demonstrate that you're innocent Mm -hmm. you want to go on to the you know work and because i think you said it beautifully in the book you were a contributing member of society Mm -hmm. you had a job and a career and everything else going for you and that got stripped away from you overnight Mm-hmm. You can, it's like COVID. We will never go back to the way things were before, and your life will never go back to the way it was before. Mm-hmm. You're probably a stronger person now, yeah. but you want to go into that future that's been kind of promised and that you've been working towards. And trust me, all of us would, would just love to see that for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dante Eubank says, pave the way by sharing your story. You will open doors for many. So, I mean, they're always... And, and look at my cousin just dropping stuff. She's dropping all kinds of <laughs> I love my family, man. I, I, I get on my nerves, but I love, love, love my family. And um, yeah, so they said, yeah, Rhonda Barlow, I think this is what Brian was talking about, where Rhonda said, nothing acts, nothing gains, right? Everybody, including mm-hmm. P. Harris, you know. And it's, it's just a your your story is is just is awesome, and to survive it the way that you did, cousin. First of all, I'm ex- I'm so glad you survived it because I wouldn't get the opportunity to know you. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. 
Um, I'm very, very glad that you survived that whole ordeal. Um, so you had at the back of the book for your information. Mm-hmm. I'm, I didn't even get a chance. I was just so done and strong. So Brian, <laughs> Brian has the book right now. Okay. <laughs> what are some of the things in the for, in, for your information? that They are. <laughs> well, again, there's some very interesting statistics about incarceration rates for, for Black people specifically, saying that we're overrepresented at every level of the criminal justice system. Um, imprisonment rates are higher. Uh, this was an important point. And this is, again, something that we're going to have to grapple with as a country. Police mm-hmm. prosecutors and judges are not held accountable for misconduct that leads to wrongful correction, convictions. Mm-hmm. That, that has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking for that. Uh, well, we also have another cousin. Um, her name is Loretta. And Loretta said, I will ask my cousin, who is a criminal attorney in New York, D.C., and Virginia, what mm-hmm. my lawyer can do to get her case overturned or at least heard by the appellate court. Loretta's good. She's mm-hmm. really she's on my nerves, too. But <laughs> she knows I love her dearly. Mm-hmm. And um, no, but she she's a very good person. All jokes aside, she's a very good person to be able to help, and she will she she'll if she says she's going to do it, she will do that. So again, like I said, um, she wanted to know. She did just ask this quick question: Do you have an attorney now? If so, I would like to drop a name to my cousin. No, because everything pretty much has been done. I've had the two trials. I've already been to prison. I've already came home. Like at this point, like. I don't have an attorney in terms of trying to have someone look into overturning anything. That's what I've been working on. Okay. Right. Well, Lalita, this was easy, wasn't it? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, because in all seriousness, I mean, you know, we've, we've asked you to spend an hour revisiting one of the worst periods of your life. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that that's not an easy thing to do. So mm-hmm. you know, thank you so much for coming on the show and just for for being so open and yes. um, so candid. And thank you for the book. Um, oh, for- not a problem. And thank you all for having me. I, I'm very grateful. We were very excited. So it is time to, I guess, time to wrap up, right? <laughs> it is. So I just wanted to give a quick shout out about next week's show. So this is a humdinger. Uh, it's what the, a wonderful and talented African-American documentary, documentarian and producer, her name is Regina Griffin, and she's come, she did a whole documentary called Brown Babies. And this is the story of people of mixed race, primarily who were living in Germany after the end of World War II. It involves Americans as well because American, Black American servicemen and white German women having babies and kind of the fate that befell these kids. It's, um, again, it's a very powerful and it's a very moving story. It is. And I just want to thank everybody for joining us today. And, you know, just for being here and just, you know, being our, our, our rocks for the first time on stream, on on E360, this is our, you know, this is our Congratulations, you guys. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank One you. person said that they didn't see us. So we're going to have to talk to them about that. Yeah. Um, one of the things, we, we're going to do that. I, I, I need to put this up here. This says, we love you, Lalita. So. Love you guys, too. <laughs> And again, also really exciting because it's the first time that we have streamed live on YouTube. Yes. Yes. That is awesome. (laughs) We we just did a lot. And that's why I'm saying to you, this was easy, right? Mm -hmm. It was easy. (laughs) (laughs) easy. I knew it. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for everyone who shared this last hour with us from wherever you're watching. I'm Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. I want to thank you again for being here. We hope to see you guys soon.
See you next week. All right. Bye. <laughs>